Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about Josephine Baker. And uh, look, I'll tell you what, this woman, she has to have one of the most incredible, one of the most extraordinary life stories you're likely to come across here because so after being born after being born into uh, into poverty abject poverty in the United States she eventually relocated to Paris and became a very famous entertainer there she working in vaudeville films singing dancing all that sort of stuff there but this wasn't enough for her despite being despite becoming this huge big celebrity throughout Europe once the second world war broke out she had a bit of a career change now last week we had a bit of a, had a bit of spy chat when uh, Michael Halzer sent in the suggestion of Juan Pujol Garcia we obviously you know the self-made spy you can go back and listen to that episode there and I'll tell you what this week it's time for a little bit more spy chat this week as well because uh, once the war started Baker started working as a spy on behalf of her adopted home country France throughout the war using she was using a celebrity basically you know using a celebrity status there to, to great effect going you know, cutting cutting about Europe tricking secret secrets out of people and smuggling information back to the French did a, a bloody incredible job of it she did um, but even then, she wasn't finished because once the war was over, she returned to the US and took up the cause of civil rights. She fought segregation with her, you know, with her star power. She worked with the NAACP, people, people like Martin Luther King giving speeches and performances, fighting segregation, all the rest of it there like that. And once she'd had enough of that, she adopted 12 kids and lived in a castle in the French countryside. As you do. So I think it's fair to say that Josephine Baker, she definitely carpeted more than a few DMs, I reckon, here. And uh, there's a lot to get across. So let's get straight to it, have a chat about what this incredible woman was all about here. We're going all the way back to the 3rd of June, 1906, here, when she was born as Frida Josephine MacDonald in St. Louis in the United States. Her mum, Carrie MacDonald, was the adopted daughter of former slaves, and she was terribly poor. And so Baker lived her early years in, in as I say, in abject poverty. So we don't. The other interesting thing here is we don't know 100% who her dad was. Unfortunately, Baker uh, always claimed it uh, was the bloke that her mum was with, Eddie Carson. But there's a lot of evidence to suggest that it was actually some unknown white fella, and we're still not 100% on that. There, you know, there are a bunch of so uh, the 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 pregnancy, the birth, there were a lot of complications, and her mum spent a lot of time in hospital, which typically wouldn't have happened for an African American at this time. There was a proper register made of the birth and, and medical bills that were paid. That obviously just you know the, with the way things were in 1906 for African Americans in the United States. Obviously, you know, a lot of luxuries were afforded to uh, to Carrie McDonald that, that wouldn't wouldn't normally have been. And it, it indicates that there may have been some involvement with a, a rich white fellow, but we're not sure. We don't know 100%. And, you know, the mystery's never been fully solved. In any case, her parents, as they were, Carrie and Eddie, they had this little uh, musical performance gig going on for themselves. They're playing in music halls and vaudeville theatres and the like there like that. So young Baker, she was exposed to the world of entertainment, world of showbiz, very, very young age, although it didn't treat her parents too well. Despite they had this little act going on, they never really had all that much money. They lived in a pretty unpleasant part of St. Louis, uh, you know, sleeping several, you know, all, all in the one bed there like that. And, uh, you know, uh, young Josephine, she's going around, you know, scrappy old clothes, rags and whatever else and uh, and, and didn't, have a great, didn't have a great time as a kid as well. She didn't spend long at school. She dropped out by the time she was around 12. 
Um, and that's on top of the fact that from the age of eight, she was actually working as a domestic servant for various uh, wealthy white families where she actually copped some pretty horrific abuse, uh, you know, getting her hands burnt and, and a bunch of other, you know, really, really nasty stuff that was going on with this uh, this poor girl, you know, even, even as a kid there. Not a very nice childhood, you'd have to say. Um, but after dropping out of school, uh, she started working as a waitress and, uh, you know, kind of... Things didn't get too much better for her, even even as she sought employment, because she ended up living on the street. She's scavenging food out of rubbish bins, really, so so quite a low point for our mate uh, Baker there like that. She also got married, if you'll believe this, at the age of 13. She got married to a bloke named Willie Wells, although, you know, like so many other teenage romances, it didn't last. Very unhappy marriage. They were divorced within a year. But after this, after this marriage fa- uh, fell apart here, after it failed, uh, Baker started to perform with a group called the Jones Family Band, and uh, she ended up married again in 1921. She's just uh, just 15 years old at this stage, and this time it was to a fellow named Willie Baker. She always had a real thing for Willies here, um, and it was uh, and, and it was at this point that her career as an entertainer it started, you know, take a, take a bit of an upswing, and, and as a result of this, because she kind of gained a little bit of fame and notoriety, she actually kept this name Baker despite divorcing. Uh, Willie Baker later on, as we'll as we'll hear, she actually kept the name Baker for the rest of her life. So, you know, sort of not quite a stage name, but you know, definitely as a professional, as a trading name. At least she, she was known as Josephine Baker for the rest of her life. Anyway, this upswing, as I'm saying, it started once um, she she kept pestering this bloke, uh, the, the manager of, of a local vaudeville theatre theatre there in in St Louis, uh, and eventually this bloke just you know so she wore him down, and eventually he gives her a, a, a geek, gives her a chance uh, on stage, and she's dancing, singing, whatever else, and her very obvious talent meant that her career started to take off from there, but unfortunately. She had a bit of a strained relationship with her family, with her mum, especially at this uh, at this stage, and it broke down more and more the further that she got herself into showbiz. Her mum didn't want her to work as an entertainer. Maybe she'd seen, you know, what the showbiz industry was all about, what it was like to work in the entertainment, um, and didn't want the same thing for her daughter. And, and as a result, the two, they became more and more estranged as time went on. You know, this is despite the fact that Baker was actually bringing in a fair bit of cash, you know, comparatively speaking, bringing in cash, bringing home gifts for mum, all that sort of stuff. Her mum still disapproved and uh, wanted her to sort of settle down with Willie Baker and stop all the singing and the dancing. So eventually, Baker has to choose between her her family and her career. That that's sort of what it comes down to, basically. And in 1925, she actually she makes up her mind after a successful trip to New York with her vaudeville act. Things are going from uh, you know going pretty well there. Um, she left her mum and her husband behind, and she got on a ship to Europe. She just goes bugger this, bugger this for a joke. I'm gonna I'm gonna you know seek my fortune on the other side of the. Usually it's the other way around. Usually you know you you head over to the United States to to seek fame and fortune. But Baker, understandably, she's out of there, heading over to France. Right? She says. See your mum, old lady. I'm off to France. Going to get some, you know, bloody frogs and snails into me. Some just gets the, some of the stinkiest cheese I can. Like, what is it with French food? They've got the best bread in the world. There's no better bread on earth than the, than 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 French bread, and it's not close. And then what? After that, they just decided that they've they've had enough of, of making nice, delicious, tasty food. They just going to eat disgusting, gross stuff. You know, apart from their amazing bread, they're just going to take these these incredible baked products and just, you know, put, again, frogs and snails, bits of horse, whatever else on top of it. I don't know what's going on with French food. Anyway, 1925, just 19 years of age, right? Hardly more than a kid she is. Baker, she arrives in Paris. She's bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and she's ready to bloody take the city by storm, I'll tell you this. And more or less, this is actually exactly what happens. I mean, you know, usually on Half-Hours History, our heroes have to sort of go through the, the usual narrative of, oh, and then it went from bad to worse. But here it actually went from 
good to better for, for Baker. No worries at all. She started working in various theatres and she was catapulted to success very quickly indeed, thanks to a couple of different things that were going on at the time. So first of all, there was a bit of a fascination with non-European culture within Europe at this stage. The Art Deco movement just about to kick off there in 1925 and this you know exotic American coming over to sing and dance arrived at, at, at just the right time to take advantage of that. There's interest in American culture, there's interest in African culture and uh, and old mate Baker's able to you know, incorporate both of these things in many of her acts and, and obviously going gangbusters there like that. Secondly, Baker was just really bloody good at what she did. She was a very gifted singer, very talented dancer, and she just knocks, knocked socks off the people that she's performing for. So she's just, just raw talent is really helping her out. And thirdly, and you know, maybe actually this is the real reason more than anything else, is that she... <laughs> She just bloody loved getting her kid off and dancing about in the Rudy Nudie. You, you, you might have seen the famous picture of her uh, wearing the skirt made of uh, bananas and also wearing, you know, very little else apart from that. She loved getting up on stage, you know, dancing and jiggling about, having a great time. And this obviously, you know, helped to enormously grow her popularity as a, as a singer and dancer, as a performer. So whatever it was, in any case, whatever it was. It didn't take long for her to become an absolute sensation, huge celebrity. She's rubbing shoulders with, you know, all rich and famous and powerful around around the continent, people like Ernest Hemingway. Uh, she's getting drawn by Picasso, all sorts of stuff's happening to her. She's just, you know, she's, she's off like a rocket here. She's recording songs, performing in films, and of course she uh, yeah, she keeps giving her, you know, immensely popular live performances. And, you know, I have to say, too, it wasn't just her singing and dancing and jiggling that made her performances so popular because there was a couple of, there were a few other things as well. Baker at this point, once she sort of took off, started earning a bit of money, she had somehow obtained a uh, a pet cheetah, as you do, again, uh, which she took to these performances that she was getting, uh, dressed in a little diamond collar it was, and this cheetah seemed to enjoy leaping into the orchestra pit and going after all the, all the musicians there, which, uh, I'll tell you what, it would, it would have bloody livened up the uh, the performance a little bit, you'd have to think. I mean, look, I'm, I'm not really one for, you know, singing, singing and dancing and all that sort of stuff at performances. But I'd pay very good money to see a bloke with a tuba try to fight off a cheetah. I have to say that much. Uh, apparently, she loved animals. Apparently, at various points, she also had a pet goat and a pet pig. And the pig um, got so fat, it was so well fed that when it was when it was removed from one of the places it was being, you know, uh, w- w- that it was living, it actually couldn't fit through the doors. They had to, they had to knock down the doors that, and, and make it wider so this enormous big fat pig could could uh, to to make it. I feel a bit sorry for the pig and for the uh, for the goat because no one talks about them. Everyone's just you know everyone's just talking about the the the, the cheetah because it's going around bloody mauling the viola player. Well, actually no, that's a bad example because obviously no one would no one would even notice if a viola player was mauled to death, would they? Let's be honest. Anyway. Things are going gangbusters for our mate Baker, and while she's on the up and up, she's getting involved with all sorts of people, as you can imagine. There were plenty of blokes who were interested in her, and uh, also a fair few women, by uh, by the sounds of it. And uh, Baker was actually, she was happy enough to bump uglies with uh, with both of them. She had uh, relationships with both men and women while hanging out in Paris, but the most important relationship uh, was one that she kicked off with this Italian bloke, Giuseppe Pepito Abitino. Now, Interestingly, this is not how he introduces himself to her, however. This is not the name that he gives her uh, when he meets Baker. Uh, when he meets her for the first time, he calls himself Count Pepito di Albertini. This bloke is pretending to be a member of the nobility when in reality he was just a stonemason from Sicily. Imagine this, a brickie pretending to be this jumped up posh bloke just to pull this famous bird, but it works. He meets Baker, pretends to be this count bloke and convinces her that she needs a manager and that he was the man for the job. I mean, the vicious con that this bloke was running absolutely beggars belief, but it seemed to work for both him and for Baker because Baker takes him on and better yet, the two started rooting as well. Now, she's technically 
still married to Willie Baker back in the US. Um, so she can't marry old mate Giuseppe, but the two of them, they're still going at it like rabbits. And on top of this, as her manager, he's doing an incredible bloody job. As we head into the 30s, Baker's career is skyrocketing higher and higher and higher. She, she, she started to do a bit of opera here and there, as well as her other shows. And she's very firmly entrenching herself as a household name in Western Europe. She's touring about, selling out theatres, having a you know, bloody great time. Well, there, um, there weren't, you know, it's not all bloody sunshine and rainbows here. There were a couple of people who weren't huge fans of her. There's a story, the story goes that um, one time uh, she was going to do a, you know, whole, whole Rudy Nudy bit in the theatre, uh, in a theatre in Vienna. And uh, there was some stick in the muds in the church opposite, and they just sat there and rang the bells the whole time, trying to ruin the performance and remind everyone, you know, inside watching the performance that, you know, they were going to hell because of their fondness for, uh, you know, jiggling. Um, but whatever, Baker doesn't care, doesn't let it, uh, doesn't let it affect her. She's making buckets of money and she's loving life. She bought all sorts of rubbish for herself, golden piano, for example. She apparently bought the bed, the, the actual bed that Marie Antoinette used to sleep in. So. You know, turns out by picking up this fake count bloke, it was a very good career move by the looks of things. Although there was one interesting uh, incident with her mate, the count here. Uh, so at one point, right, uh, Baker was in Hungary in 1928 and some Hungarian fella who's obviously, you know, pretty keen on her. Uh, he's bloody ogling her and whatever else. And old mate Count Bricklayer, he doesn't like this at all. So what does he do? He must have set his watch wrong and been, you know, running just a few hundred years late here because what he, went, what he did, he went ahead and challenged this bloke to a duel. Now the Hungarian bloke, and I'm, you know, whose name I'm trying to avoid saying his name to be honest. His his name was Andrew Slavoidi. It's C Z L O V O Y D I. I mean, look, I know I can't talk with my last name, but that vowel to consonant ratio is just a little bit too much for me, I reckon. Anyway, these two knuckleheads. Uh, they agree to the duel and they decide to have it in a cemetery, the, you know, being the absolute drama queens that they are. And Baker apparently, oh, look, she was apparently quite into it, which I to- actually, t- I, I totally get it because I've never had two people duel for me. But if, it, if that happened, I'd, I, I reckon I'd, I, I don't think I'd mind it too much, to be honest. Anyway, these these idiots, you know, they're inexpertly hefting their swords at each other for about 10 minutes until old mate Andrew Shalalaboidi or whatever his bloody name is, um, nicks Giuseppe on the shoulder and that's it. Duel over the Hungarian wins. Hooray, congratulations. Well done. And that at this point, Baker intervenes and says, you know, well done, whatever your name is, but honestly, makes no difference. I'm still going off with me Italian stallion. I don't know what you expected, mate. I mean, you know, thanks for fighting the duel, but whatever. Anyway, as I say, obviously, you know, she's having a great time in Europe. She's a super bloody big, huge megastar at this stage, big, huge celebrity, very successful singing, dancing, whatever else they're like that. And on the back of all this success she's having in Europe, she decides that it's time to go back and perform in the United States. She's going to get a gig on Broadway in New York and, and see how fortune favours her back over on the other side of the Atlantic. Now, unfortunately, um, unfortunately for our mate Baker here, the uh, the good old-fashioned American tradition of, uh, of treating brown people like garbage uh, deep-sixed her return to her native land here because despite being one of the most celebrated performers in Europe, her shows in America were just, they were just panned. Like, they were just absolutely panned by the American press. They were full of just awful, this awful racist drivel. Uh, for example, Time magazine wrote that she was a Negro wench whose dancing and singing might be topped anywhere outside of Paris. Ah, America, again, we're talking about one of the most successful and celebrated singers on the planet, but people in the United States couldn't see past the colour of her skin. It won't surprise you to learn, therefore, that she left the United States in 1937, feeling utterly miserable about the whole trip back to the States, and further, it strongly influenced her decision 
to eventually renounce her U.S. citizenship and become French instead. She married a French bloke na- uh, named Jean Lyon. Uh, I don't know what happened to the pretend count fella, actually. Um, but, you know, after having uh, married this fellow, renounced her, uh, her American citizenship, become an, an actual proper, you know, red-blooded French woman, she wasn't just any old French woman after this. Oh, mate, absolutely not. She loved France so bloody much that, as I mentioned, she went on to become a spy for her adopted homeland as the world sped towards another world war at the end of the 1930s. So with the outbreak of war in September 1939, Josephine Baker actually ends up getting recruited as an agent for the Deuxième Bureau, which is France's uh, intelligence agency at the time. Uh, this is just after the Nazis have invaded Poland. Again, 1st of September uh, 1939 was the start of the war, and it's uh, shortly after that that Baker enters into the intelligence service there in France. So France and Britain, they've declared war on Germany as a result of, uh, of this invasion of Poland, and so Baker, she's picked up to help, uh, help with the, the war effort, and what a bloody help she was. I tell you what, given her celebrity status she is off cutting about with the rich and powerful all over the place going to soirees and whatnot parties whatever else hanging out with people from all over europe these people included high-level diplomats high-level bureaucrats and people generally in the know when it came to you know european affairs and, and especially the war that had just broken out here so with her celebrity, with her personal charm, she was able to work people over if she thought that they had useful information. She'd go and, you know, flirt with them, chat with them, blast them with the charisma, whatever else. She'd typically go after Italian or Japanese blokes, winning them over with her fame and whatever else, and have them unwittingly spill the beans on sens- uh, sensitive uh, military information. She'd then feed that information back to the Bureau, just like that easy game. Now, because of her status as an A-list megastar, there was nothing suspicious about her going to places like the Italian embassy for a dinner party, or even better, traveling around uh, around the continent to, to you know new, neutral nations like Portugal. And there, she would go about gathering information or trying to win over neutral political leaders again, not raising too much suspicion because again, she had all, she had a, a very plausible cover story as to why she was uh, she was traveling around like this. She was able to ferry back information about Nazi troop movement, about the deployment of these troops, about hardware and resources, about airfields and docks, and all sorts of invaluable intelligence that she gathered firsthand by being able to go through these places more or less unquestioned. Now, obviously, she'd be stopped, she'd be questioned, she'd. Uh, you know, had to have to be searched and whatever else there, here and there like that. But the best bit is how she managed to smuggle all of this information through the checks and through the you know the, the guards and, and the searches and whatever else that she was uh, that, that were that were put upon her. Because you know, despite her celebrity, she still obviously wasn't completely above uh, any any suspicion whatsoever. So she had to you know pull a couple of fast ones over the people who were trying to uh, trying to figure out what she was uh, she was all about here. So. It was wartime. People weren't oblivious to spies. You know, there were counterintelligence services going around and trying to unpick or, or, or discover, uh, you know, enemy spies here. So she couldn't walk around with, you know, reams of military intelligence in her hand luggage. That's not going to work at all. So instead, she had a bloke posing as her musical assistant, right, as a sort of PA almost, who was also a trained French intelligence operative. And together, they would write notes on her sheet music in invisible ink. I mean, well, uh, when I say notes, I mean like spy stuff notes, not musical notes. That wouldn't be much good in Invisible Ink, unless you're trying to keep your, you know, your next club banger secret. I generally advise to use regular normal ink when you're writing musical notes. But if you secret spy stuff, absolutely, absolutely Invisible Ink when you're writing secret spy stuff. No worries there. But for music, you know, just just stick with the old bio, I reckon. Anyway, 
The other way she would uh, smuggle these notes about, if you believe this later on, is in her knickers. You know, photographs or other stuff that couldn't be written down. She would actually, she would actually hide these right in her jocks when she's going through checkpoints or whatever. She's chatting and smiling and laughing, blasting them with you know top tier charisma checks there. And she knew that given her status as a celebrity, she was very unlikely to be strip searched. And so she was able to sneak tons of information past guards and checkpoints and whatnot, you know, luggage searches, by just whacking it down there in her undies. Absolutely genius. Brilliant. Just like that, just down there in the old unmentionables. Not a problem. So 19, in 1940, she's, you know, she's cutting about working as a spy. And in 1940, her, uh, her marriage with uh, Jean-Leon, that, that bloke I was talking about, uh, this marriage fails. It breaks down. They divorced. Um, and shortly after this in 1941, she actually headed off to northern Africa to aid the French resistance now that France had fallen to the Nazis. And she sets herself up in Morocco. She's got a cover story that the move there was for her health. Uh, and, and she continues, however, you know, she's not just there for a bit of a rest and relaxation. She continues cutting about gathering information for the French resistance, for, for free France there. And uh, she also worked on a couple of other little projects while she was in Casablanca. She worked with Brit- uh, British intelligence to set up uh, communication networks. And she also, quite interestingly, was involved with the people who were helping Jews flee from Europe to South America, helping them get furnished with Spanish passports so that they could escape to the other side of the Atlantic to safety. Now, unfortunately, even though she's doing all this good work uh, here, she had a, she had a couple of medical issues while working like this. Uh, she had a miscarriage, which left her with a very severe infection, and that meant that she had to have a hysterectomy. And even after that, she was crook as a dog for a long time afterwards. And so this kind of put her out of action. She was on the sidelines for a little bit, but no worries. She's a fighter, Emmett Baker, and uh, she fought her way back through it, and she was back in action before too much longer. And after her recovery, she started to do a bit of performing. There were all sorts of allied troops across North Africa in this stage, so she put these great big concerts and performances on for them, uh, obviously to raise morale and uh, and you know keep the keep the troops happy there. But it also resulted in her doing a bit of politicking as well. She uh, she was in Egypt at one point. Now Egypt was officially neutral during the war. So when she was visiting Cairo and the Egyptian king Farouk. Uh, the, the king invited her, asked her to come and perform, and she said no. She said she wasn't going to do it because Egypt didn't recognise free France. So this Farouk fella, if you'll believe it, he was that keen for her to come and perform that he was persuaded by her to to stage this massive big event that celebrated free France and, you know, its its ties and its links to Egypt there like that, right there in, in this supposedly neutral country. So thanks to Baker, you had a neutral king you know, going around with this famed French singer putting on a performance about how excellent free France is. Not a bad day's work for Baker's there, you know, undermining the neutrality of Egypt in favour of the Allies. Not a bad day in the office there for old mate Baker. Anyway, the long and the short of it was that Baker had gone from being one of the most successful and celebrated musical performers in Europe to an extremely valuable and effective intelligence operative. And, and I think you'll agree, that is quite the pivot. But uh, oh look, bloody good on her. And after the war, her efforts were recognised by the French government. She got showered with medals and awards. She ended up in the Legion of Honour as well as getting all these other, you know, decorations across her chest there like that. So this woman now, she's weighed down with all these accolades, but he putting her back out with all the medals hanging off her chest there like that. And she is the toast of Europe. In 1949, she goes back to performing sold-out shows. Once again, she's at the top of her game. She gets remarried. This, this, this is now husband number four. Um, in 1947, and gets married to a bloke named uh, Joe Bion. Uh, and together, they bought an actual literal castle, a chateau, out in the, uh, in the southwest of France. And just as before... 
people are bloody loving her. She's hanging out with the rich and the famous, princes and presidents. They're falling over themselves to see her perform. Nothing all that surprising about that. You'd think, you know, she's a huge, big superstar. Of course, people are going to be fawning all over her. But the interesting and pretty bloody ordinary thing here, the pretty interesting part comes when she headed back over across the Atlantic to the United States once again in the 1950s. There was a club manager in Florida who had visited Europe, seen her perform, and actually invited her to head back across the Atlantic to uh, to come and perform at his venue in Miami. And I'll tell you what, her return cast a pretty grim light on the state of affairs back in the United States because she, she accepts the offer, she makes her travel arrangements, and she's ready to head back to her, you know, to her, to the, the nation of her birth. But when Baker and her new husband arrived in New York City, they try to find themselves a hotel to stay in, and they were turned down by no fewer than 36 different establishments just because Baker was black. Can you imagine a European megastar like, I, I don't know, Adele or uh, Avicii? Well, actually, no, not, not Avicii. He's probably not making too many hotel reservations these days, is he? Anyway, whatever. Can you imagine someone like that being turned away? I mean, look, it, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't bloody matter that she was a hugely famous celebrity. The fact of the matter is, you shouldn't be turned away from a hotel for something as arbitrary as the colour of your skin. We all know that. But poor bloody Baker having to, having to you know, again, sh- shedding a very bright light on the injustice, on the terrible, on the terrible situation that was faced by uh, African Americans, you know, at, at this stage of, of the United States history. And it wasn't only this. It was this wasn't the only incident she had to face. This wasn't the only uh, only, only issue that uh, that emerged. Of course, it wasn't. So many people like Baker being treated horrifically back then, while still in New York. Baker went to the famous Stork Club in Manhattan. You may have heard of this place. It was, you know, it was a place where all the rich and famous, all the actors and you know, politicians, whoever else, anyone who was uh, anyone was was hanging out at the Stork Club in uh, in Manhattan in the fifties and sixties, only to be refused service. Now this backfired horribly on the club because guess who else was in the Stork Club while Baker's getting knocked back here like this? It was none other than Grace Kelly, another international megastar, another huge big celebrity. And Kelly sees what's going on. She walks over to Baker, takes her by the arm, and walks straight out of the place with her entire entourage, swearing, informing the management that she will never ever come back again. I mean, she. She, you know, she actually did years and years later, but but that's not the point. That's not the point. It was about the, the message that she was sending at the time, and as a result of this whole incident here, Grace Kelly and Josephine Baker they became lifelong friends, very close friends indeed. After this, and you know, including this is even after uh, Kelly uh, became the princess consort of Monaco, as I mentioned, by by marrying Prince Ranier. Um, anyway, unsurprisingly, all this mistreatment. It really got Baker's back up. It got her back up to the point that uh, she started getting seriously invested in the civil rights movement, something that she'd always supported from back in France, but now she's on the bloody front lines, mate, so she's, she's ready to crack some skulls. She got involved with the uh, NAACP, with Martin Luther King's movement, uh, you know, all sorts of stuff, using her star, star power here to bring some pretty meaningful change throughout the US. There are quite a few examples of the things she achieved. I'm, I'm going to go through just a few of them very quickly here like this. So um, uh, remember the guy who asked her, invited her to come back and play in uh, in Miami? This uh, this this promoter, this manager, whatever else, um, he was running a segregated club. It turned out so Baker, after coming and seeing what was happening here, after seeing you know the, the circumstances that the, the club patrons were were being subjected to, she refused to play. She said, "No, absolutely bugger you. No, I'm not. There's no way that I'm playing here." You know, she she was offered ridiculous amounts of money to go ahead with the performance, but she point blank refused. She said that she wouldn't perform unless the club changed its policy, which happily it did. 
And this was just the start of her influence on desegregation. When she was out in Vegas, she and other huge stars like Nat King Cole, Ella Fitzgerald, all these, you know, these famous musicians we've all heard of today, none of them were allowed to stay in the fancy hotels because of, you know, these ridiculous racist policies that, uh, that, that establishments and venues had back then. She responded to this. Our mate Baker, she responded to this, you know, this, this out-and-out racism by refusing to perform anywhere that banned black people from attending shows and anywhere that segregated their audiences. Now, obviously, this woman is a massive star and obviously money talks. And this means that, you know, the fact that she is all of a sudden performing in venues that are going to behave like reasonable, civilized members of the human race, it meant that, you know, all of a sudden there are these big venues who are missing out on, on one of the biggest stars of the age. And so a number of venues very quickly started to change their tune when they realised on the, the audiences that they were missing out on. And this caused a shift of the culture of the city of Las Vegas very, very quickly. All of a sudden, hotels, casinos, venues, all these places, they'd been racially segregated for years and years and years, and now they were starting to revisit the racist garbage policies that they had and instead They start now to embrace integration. Josephine Baker was instrumental in the desegregation of the the entertainment industry in Las Vegas and and broadly speaking throughout the United States. She had a huge influence on it there like that just because that she she stood up and made her voice heard. Well, actually, she made her voice not heard. That was the thing. She she refused to allow her voice to be heard in these uh, these venues that, uh, that were peddling this racist nonsense. The treatment that she received in some places, absolutely shocking. And I think it's important to note that it's not any more shocking or any any worse because she was a celebrity. There were countless people throughout the United States being treated like garbage because of the colour of their skin. But having it happen to a high-profile European superstar goes to show the extent of the disgraceful state of affairs in the United States you know, at this point in history. And and also, in fairness, Baker did have it worse than a lot of other people because, as you know, some with a very high profile, she's receiving death threats. She's receiving threats of violence. She's got the KKK coming after her. And throughout all of it, you have to admire her her dignity, her poise, her, her, her you know, tenacity because she kept at it. She made public statements saying that she wasn't afraid of these racists, that she was going to stick to her guns and fight for what she considered was right. You know, and... What this resulted in, you know, I mean, today we see her as obviously here of the civil rights movement, whatever else. But at the time, what this resulted in was unfounded accusations of communist sympathies, which, of course, in the, in the era of McCarthyism were absolute kryptonite to any, uh, any, any performer hoping to succeed in the United States. And it meant that the, the FBI maintained a file on her for, in their words, her anti-United States statements and her fight for racial equality. So once again... Nice one, America. Again, just knocking it out of the park. Anyway, these, uh, you know, the slander and, and the accusations of communist sympathies, all that sort of stuff, it meant that she wasn't hugely motivated to stay in the United States, despite the fact that she did very actively and vocally support the, the civil rights movement. And she ended up heading back to France. And, you know, she spent time between the two nations, but broadly speaking, was based in France. And from 1954 onwards, she started a family, an enormous family, as it turned out. She actually ended up adopting 12 kids from all over the world that came and lived with her in this castle in France. And, you know, this may sound uh, pretty familiar to you. If you're a fan of, you know, someone like Angelina Jolie, you'll, you, you will have seen a situation like this happen before. And Jolie herself has actually talked about how Baker influenced her in her family situation, you can obviously see the parallels there between the uh, between Baker and the kids that uh, Jolly has adopted as well. But in any case, Baker's work with the civil rights movement, it continued all the way through to the 50s until in 1963, she actually headed back over to the United States to speak 
at the enormous big March on Washington alongside Martin Luther King. You've all heard of this enormous momentous event and and Baker was uh, was there. She was actually the only official female speaker at the march there and uh, she wore her Free France uniform and she wore all of her medals and she stood up in front of this massive crowd and gave this big speech and here's one of the most famous quotes from the speech, speech that she made. This is what she said. <clears throat> I have walked into the palaces of kings and queens and into the houses of presidents and much more, but I could not walk into a hotel in America and get a cup of coffee. Interestingly, after King was assassinated, she was offered the position of leader of the civil rights movement to replace him. Now, she had to have a good old think about this, but uh, ultimately she decided not to accept the offer, saying that her children were too young to lose their mother which is pretty bloody chilling if that's the sort of thing that you know she's having to thinking she's going to have to deal with by by taking up a position like that that really again gives us a lot of perspective as to what you know the 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 state of the affairs at, at this stage of history anyway Throughout the 60s and 70s, she kept performing here and there. Or again, you know, not as much as before. She's getting getting on in years, and uh, you know, maybe it doesn't have the energy to uh, to be performing, you know, every bloody night. On top of that, she's also got this family to raise. She's got these 12 kids to look after as well. She's definitely got a handful. And she also, unfortunately, at this stage of her life, ran into some money troubles. She ended up losing the castle that she'd bought as she was so deep in debt at this stage. But her mate Grace Kelly was there to bail her out, thankfully. The Monacan uh, royal family are absolutely minted. Even today, they're worth over a billion dollars. And so Kelly was able to, uh, you know, help out a friend in need. Baker moved to a town just outside Monaco in, in 1968 after losing the castle. And as I, as I say, she continued to perform here and there well into the 70s. But in 1975, however... She went for broke and with a gr- and, and put on this enormous, great big show celebrating 50 years of her work in the entertainment industry. You'll remember it was in 1925 that she moved to Paris at the age of 19. And so here she is now putting on this massive big show uh, celebrating, uh, you know, half a century uh, working as a singer and as a dancer. So just to give you an idea of the clout that this woman still had when, when organising this huge big celebratory performance, just to give you an idea of the kind of muscle she could pull, uh, she could, she, some, of the, some of the weight she could throw around here. Some of the other performers, some of the openers that she had at her uh, at this show included Sophia Loren, Shirley Bassey, Diana Ross, Liza Minnelli, and Mick Bloody Jagger, mate. This show that she put on in 1975 was so successful, it was such a rip-roaring success, right, that the venue had to use folding chairs in addition to the regular seating just to accommodate everyone who wanted to go. How about that? However, quite sadly, just four days after this enormous show, this huge big extravaganza celebrating, you know, five decades of work as a singer, as a dancer, not to mention all the stuff as a spy and an activist as well, Baker was found in her bed, surrounded by newspapers with all the rave reviews of this show that had just just been put on here, in a coma. And she was taken to a nearby hospital, but she died shortly afterwards at the age of 68. Her funeral was quite a sight, I will tell you this, quite a a spectacle it was. She was the only American-born woman to have a a funeral with full French military honours. And after this, she was buried in the cemetery of Morocco, where you can still visit her grave to this day. But what a life Josephine Baker had. We see celebrities these days, you know, working on this and that to try to make the world a better place. And I think they could all learn a thing or two from our mate Baker here. To go from, you know, a a, a kid born in a slum in in St. Louis to a European megastar, to a spy risking life and limb for an adopted country, to then go and campaign for civil rights in a nation that turned its back on her... 
I mean, as I said before, I reckon Baker carpeted a, a more, more than her fair share of DMs. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Josephine Baker and what an incredible story it is. Um, we have had a lot of spy chat over the last couple of weeks. I don't know if that will continue. We'll see. If you want to have an influence on what we end up talking about next week on the next episode of Half House History, please get in touch. The best way to do this is, of course, at the website, halfhousehistory.net. You can send in uh, suggestions for uh, topics, ideas, whatever else, or feedback or anything else like that. And at the moment, I really am needing some feedback on uh, on the merch situation. I've made some pretty serious inquiries. I'm ready to kind of lay down some cash and get some stuff ordered. But I want to know what people want, what the listeners of the show want. I'm thinking there's stuff like t-shirts, there's tote bags, there's magnets and badges and temporary tattoos or bookmarks, there's beanies and caps and all sorts of stuff. So I want to get a gauge of what people might be into before I, you know, go and spend thousands of dollars on stuff that people actually don't want. But where am I getting the thousands of dollars, I hear you ask? Well, well, the kind and generous souls who are chucking me money hand over fist on Patreon. You can be one of these people as well. If you've just got too much money, you don't know what to do with it, well, I've got a solution for you. You can give it to me. Uh, Patreon, uh, uh, there's a link there on the on the website, of course, halfhousehistory.net. And uh, I very much appreciate all the contributions, large and small. Thank you so much. And it is enabling me to do cool stuff like, uh, like you know, start making merch and all that sort of thing as well. So thank you so much to all the people supporting me. And even if you're not, uh, even if you're not chucking money at me in the Patreon, thanks so much for listening. Really, just thanks for, you know, having a, having a sit down every week and listen to me you know go on about whatever whatever takes my fancy that week i really appreciate it It means it means so much to have people just you know tuning into my silly nonsense week in and week out if you want to uh, subscribe to the show of course easy way to do that on itunes or spotify there's links on the website and of course if you tell your mates about it tweet about it whatever else like that i really do appreciate people trying to get the word out there like that because uh yeah i don't know quite a special thing to uh, to be building this little community of people enjoying my uh, my half-ass history every week anyway that's enough of that. Enough of that nonsense. We're going to close the show the way we always do, of course, with a, pe- a question posed on Reddit. Reddit historian Thermodynamic Arrow has a question about the civil rights movement. Of course, we talked about the uh, civil rights movement, talked about its leaders. And uh, here is their question. <clears throat> How did Martin Luther find time to create Protestantism when he was also so busy with all of his civil rights movement stuff? <laughs>